some types of doing invite themselves reflection on the significance of doing as a way to know. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. I'm Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Susie Andrews, who is Associate Professor of East Asian Religions at Mount Allison University's Department of Religious Studies. Susie is a scholar of narrative, whose research explores how the telling and retelling of stories matters for individuals and communities. She's also one of my favorite teachers. I, a few years ago, attended a session on how to use Play-Doh in your classroom that really changed me forever. At Mount Allison University, Dr. Andrews teaches courses like Death in the Afterlife in Asian Religions and Food Practices in East Asian Religions, and she finds really innovative ways to engage those subjects with her students. She has them building in auditoriums and is just endlessly creative, as well as very generous as a teacher. Please enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson, and I am very happy to be here. Today, I am speaking with my friend and colleague, Professor Susie Andrews, who's a professor of Eastern Religions at Mount Allison University, which is in Sackville, New Brunswick, here in Canada. Hi, Susie. Hello. It's nice to see you. Oh, nice to see you as well. I'm so happy to be talking to you about teaching in Buddhist studies today. I feel the same way. I feel very lucky to be speaking with you. So Susie um, is, I'm, I'm excited because you are one of my kind of teaching heroes, right? You were you gave a Numata lecture here in Toronto a few years ago, where you <laughs> came to this Numata lecture, which you know we have we ha- we've had a lot of those. We get a lot of those, and they're they're great. But sometimes they're they're anyway. This was the first Numata lecture that was ever about why we should use Plato in the teaching of Buddhist studies, and I just was like, this is my this is my tribe. I found my tribe. So I was so excited, and um, I proceeded to go by Plato the next day and proceed to use it in every class. Just ask my students. So I felt the same way when I met you and visited with your program. It is such a beautiful place of learning and teaching, and the the conference you hosted right before the start of this global pandemic was for me a highlight of my career and also my personal life. I, you are building. How lucky were we that we got to do that? Yeah, we had a we had that awesome conference on teaching Buddhist studies, and it was February of what year was that? Twenty twenty. So it yes. was right, right? It was right before, like about like right before the world would change after a few weeks. But we had like that golden moment in a room together. Talking yeah. about yeah, and, it was pretty, and, and practicing yeah. things that matter dearly to us, right? Yeah, yeah. And for anyone listening who hasn't found them yet, there's a bunch of uh, videos recorded from that. From so we produce those as um, they're freely available on YouTube. So our check out our uh, webpage later for some of those talks, including yours, yes. right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> or and oh, others, yes. many others. Um, <laughs> yours and others, but yeah, it's a, it was a pretty wonderful conference. I agree. And Susie, I happen to know that you are a really wonderful teacher, which I've always known, but recently you have also been awarded the Herbert and Leota Tucker Teaching Award at Mount Allison, which is a a great honor and, of course, well-deserved. So congratulations on that. Oh, that is super kind, Sarah. And, you know, Mount Allison University is honestly home to a community of, like, super devoted awesomely talented university instructors. So, so that makes it very meaningful to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I'm going to get started. Who, my first question is for you to give us sort of your context. So who are you and how did you get interested in Buddhism and in teaching Asian religions? Can you give us the backstory? (laughs) Sarah, that's a really kind question. Well, you know that I think of myself as a scholar of stories. And I'm interested to know, you know, what the telling and retelling of narrative does for individuals and communities. And you probably also know that in my heart, I'm still the teacher I was in 1983. 
you know, playing with my figurines on the floor of my bedroom, imagining elaborate you know, <laughs> institutes of, of learning, right? Like, I feel like I'm doing the thing that I've been doing for, well, almost, you know, 43 years. Uh, I, I became interested in teaching Buddhist studies in particular because I had an amazing teacher of you know, Buddhism and East Asian religions and, you know, in particular, someone who was really excited about Chinese history. And I I was lucky enough, you know, in I think 1999 to join her. This was this is the late Marilyn McCullough on a study abroad uh program uh in China. And and at the time, you know, I was I was in the second year of my undergraduate degree, I think, and and it, it, this topic was new to me. This was you know, one of my first times traveling outside of Canada. And it was an extraordinary, it was just an extraordinary experience. And, um, and things changed after that for me, you know, Sarah, I didn't actually know about the perf being a professor or what it is that we do back then. And I don't even think I knew about that until, um, uh, you know, some years, some years, even after that study abroad trip. And so um, I come to the, the work you and I do as a person who has always woken up excited to learn and to create opportunities for learning. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so that so comes through. That's so cool. Where did you guys go in China, by the way? Just because I'm curious, what was that trip? Was it Beijing or? Oh, that's a great question. So we were based in Hangzhou and yeah, and then much of the coast, I mean, much of the coast, what do I mean? We would have these day trips and weekend trips, Shanghai. Neat. Yeah. Study abroad. It can be so generative and so eye-opening, right? And a great professor can be so generative and so eye-opening. Oh, that yeah. is what I think. And for me, uh, it is quite a it isn't a complete surprise. You and I both know, you know, if we graduate and then find a home for our work, that's an extraordinary bit of good fortune mm -hmm. to be actually in the, the um, same position as that transformative teacher for me. I should be and often am waking up full of delight. <laughs> Yes, yes, yeah. Right? Like a it is a honor. huge, yeah. it's a it's true. true circle. Who yeah. are your students now? Where are they coming from? And where are they going after they take one of your courses? Oh, that's a great question. So you know that Mount Allison University is in the Canadian Maritimes in a small town of about 5,000 humans. And our university has about 2,200 uh, students. Many of them come from right here from New Brunswick or maybe our neighboring, you know, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. And then we also have a number of students who come from away, <laughs> you know, places like Toronto or Vancouver or Shanghai, for example, right? And um, more and more, we're welcoming students from outside of Canada to our campus, right? And the pandemic and learning online has actually, I think, made that more possible. As a primarily undergraduate institution, right? We really are a community of folks beginning their work in a particular discipline. You know, though, happily, many of those individuals are actually returning to school, right? After pursuing careers, that take the, took them in other other directions. So it's it's a community of undergraduates in a small town in the middle of the Maritimes. This is kind of getting broader in questioning, but what uh, I think you do a lot of kind of embodied learning, right, in the classroom, and which so I want to talk both about classroom experiences and online experiences. But but because you know a lot has changed in this past year. <laughs> <laughs> or even embodied learning in an online learning context, which I know is something that matters to you. Right. 
we I know we can do yes we can even do that isn't it crazy but but um so I wanted to ask first just about embodied learning what is embodied learning for you and in the Asian religions classroom how have you used embodied learning in your courses I I love this question because it's a question I think about a lot and one that you have helped me pursue in your practice so in my experience I come to know things and understand them not only through the thinking, I don't know, the mental work, whatever that is, but like smelling, touching, right? You know, uh, tasting, right? The, and, and, and I know differently and I know different things because of my reflection on all kinds of experiences. And, you know, Sarah, you know my I think my personality, I love to laugh and I do find myself nourished by being with other folks. And so I think it makes total sense, right? That um, of course I'm excited to read, you know, read the cutting edge work done by our scholars that might, for example, help us to understand the way that, that food works for individuals and communities. And I think when I am doing that while, say, making dumplings or hamantashen or um, uh, working in the soil, right? When I'm actually engaged in the very activities about which I'm learning in other ways, I know more. And Sarah, one thing recently I noticed, I don't know if you'll feel the same way, okay, is that some of these practices that involve our our whole body are actually provide sort of sort of in very special ways allow for different kinds of reflection in and of themselves so it's not only that you know we can better understand commensality right and 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 the way it reinforces hierarchies or binds us together as a community we can better understand that you know when we when we eat together right but some types of being, those repetitive, like taking the the like the wrappings and folding them around the contents of a dumpling, that action actually invites reflection on the relationship between what it is we're learning from, say, a text, right? Its relationship to the very thing we're doing, that some types of doing invite themselves reflection on the significance of doing as a way to know. I, I That's probably obvious to you and to everybody who listens to your podcast. But to me, it's made, it's kind of given me an extra excitement. I don't think it's obvious at all, though, because I think, um, I don't know, sometimes we still have, I've heard of classrooms that don't do that kind of stuff. But so you you cook with students, you have built one of the coolest activities I remember hearing about that you did was the reconstruction of tombs. So you, like you had students in a gym yes. together making oh. models of like an ancient Chinese tomb. Oh, oh I love this so much. Tell us about this one. You, well, this is one of my favorite times of the year. That is when typically we uh book a big space. Because if you're going to have 180 humans creating replicas of, say, a Shang and then a Zhou period tomb, right? Right. You need space. Yeah. Uh, you need space for the Play-Doh and the nails and the <laughs> and arms. And the 180 are, humans. Right, going back and forth. <laughs> it must and be loud. 180 humans. So Is it loud? The most, yeah. Yes, it's so loud. Oh, but it's so, uh, yeah. there's so much joy. And so here's the thing. What are we doing? Well, we've worked together to talk about how it might be that this kind of source matters for folks who want to know about, say, visions of death no. in, the, in the period under study. So let's say 3,000 years ago. We've talked about how we can look at these materials and, and maybe I've modeled it by looking at a different example from the past, a different tomb. And so what's happened is students have been away from the classroom and they know this is coming. I think people look forward to it. I sure hope they look forward to it because, you know, it, making gluten-free Play-Doh for use by 180 students can take nine hours, like, or seven, 
Of course. Where else am I going to get it? And you so do the that? point is, I hope they find this as rewarding oh as I do. The point is, so people have gone and look at that material and they know they're going to have the opportunity Amazing. to create a replica. Well, it is one thing to read a description of a site. It is another thing you have to know when you're trying to figure out, like, where does that, where does that body right? Where was it placed as far as we know in that structure? And then what was around the side? And is this three layered? And what is its size compared to? Right. So you need to know in a way that lets you build and it invites these questions. And yeah. these, where to place the bronzes? Is yes, it like, is oh, it like yes. which bronze goes yeah. where? And yeah, then they have exactly. To oh, yeah. And, and how out. are you going to make yeah. a bronze? And also, yeah. I will say, I don't know what your experience has been. <sighs> I have had so many wonderful elementary, post-secondary, high school teachers. And for some reason, arts and <laughs> doing arts and crafts, singing songs. You know, I do a lot of singing of songs, uh, dancing, painting. Love it. It seems yeah. like over yeah. time, we get to do a lot of that in play school, in, in early learning. Um, one of the joys of this project is not only the ability to become experts in the material to really understand it, but also to be together and maybe for a moment giggle and find some of that, that creativity that is so welcome in at least in my children's early learning context. So yeah, I agree a hundred percent that arts and crafts like and doing them in a university classroom is such a powerful tool, right? Because like, why not keep um, like igniting, like, as you've said, kind of igniting those senses, like the full sensory experience for someone with the content. Like, so yes, you're reading about historic Shang and Joe tombs, but you're also using your hands and your eyes and your ears and your smell. And so you're activated all those senses in there. And it's just a beautiful thing. Nathan Hesselink joined us from University of British Columbia several years ago with generous funding from the AAS. Well, reading his pathbreaking scholarship on the history of music in Korea, mm, such rich material participating in a workshop on drumming with Dr. Nathan Hesselink. Now that, that changes us, doesn't it? All of a sudden, I think we have a moment to reflect on what is the meaning of this? What does it do for us as individuals and communities? Yeah, that was a great example of a time we were engaging our bodies. Wonderful. Yeah, we've been, I've been experimenting with dance in the classroom this year and last year. Um, yeah, so embodied learning and sensory experience. So can I ask you, I mean, we're still in this uh, COVID-19 moment of a pandemic that just refuses to end, even though I think I think the end's in sight, but I th we've been online for a year and a half, basically. Um, so, or a year and plus. And we're, at least here in Toronto, we're probably still online in the fall for most classes, for large, large gathering classes. So I want to ask you, because you are just an, an endlessly creative teacher and a skilled leader. I know you reimagined embodied learning for the online context and you did it anyways. So what did you do? What kinds of things did you still do that could really like get people involved in a whole body way in their learning? That's a really good question. And I have to say... I have been really gentle. I think I've done a good job of being gentle with me and gentle with my, that with the humans that I learn alongside. And why do I say that now? I say it now because, you know, when I first thought about how to bring embodied, full body learning into the online environment, I was teaching food online this this year and of course that's a course that really invites eating and cooking <laughs> yeah, right? making so stuff, i thought yeah. okay well no yeah. problem we'll just we'll just regroup and ask students to have ingredients and, and this was a this wasn't a fair request it wasn't fair to me and it wasn't fair to the humans with whom i'm learning and so we had this flexibility built into the course so i'll use food as an example i i decided that one way to move forward that would allow for choice might be to 
offer, invite every student to take ownership of an individual recipe. Our course focuses on China's present and past and the way food operates in the, what we for today are going to call the religious sphere. And so I, I pulled together 30, 30, 40 recipes and shared them among the class. Now, hum, the humans in the class students were invited to create a wiki that took that recipe and used it as a way to understand the workings of food present and past. Many of them opted right, to do that cooking to create these like really incredible uh, videos and 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 um, you know yeah it was almost like I, I actually mistook one of the students projects as a professional video that they'd embedded in the wiki no it even had like the time lapse the point is I wanted to give folks a chance to bring this material to life you know in the kitchen say but I also appreciated that we were learning around the globe how cool though so and what did you have them making they were like or was it up to them to choose Oh, well, they made their recipes. So like some students had a recipe from Ma Wang Dui, right? The tombs. Others had like, oh, did you know? <laughs> There's There are quite a few English language, well, of course, storybook cookbooks that, that are associated with, I mean, ostensibly associated with China's religious life. So, you know, on the or, oh, wonderful recipes on the Tsinchi website or, um, oh, yeah, Robin Tolino's. Yeah, I did not actually know that there's recipes from the Mawangdui tombs. Like, that's the tomb of Lady Dai. Is that one of the famous tombs? That's so cool. What were they made? But it's food? <laughs> well, Dr. Richardson, this is an important question that I think we need to rely on folks like Tolino to help Dr. Tolino to help us answer. Like, what is that line between recipes, say, and medicinal? And of course... It's not so. And what does half that stuff mean? Yeah. Like, is it weird words? Like, take the. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> like, I would imagine. A very committed uh, first year student actually took that on as their project. Um, but I, I use those examples just to show we were dealing with, you know, sources from a 2000 year period and, 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 and giving, giving people a chance to engage them in ways that, you know, to look at what what objects does making this food necessitate, perhaps, right? Or to, but, um, but I look so forward to being back on campus this autumn because, yeah, because then I can be a resource to make it possible for all of us to have access to these experiences, right? Rather than privileging folks who either have the money or the time or, you know, the space to learn in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I had a funny, I mean, I like that you talk about making it an option because I, I, this year online, did a Torma activity. You know, Torma are Tibetan, uh, like, ritual offering cakes. Yes. So I had students making Torma with me in classes, which, like, I still, it was, you could use oatmeal. This was my thing, use oatmeal. However, then, yes, my students in China were like, I can't get oatmeal. I don't know where to get oatmeal. I was like, oh, right. And so then, you know, I was like, make any dough, like any just salt dough or, you know, anything that's moldable or get Play-Doh. Um, but I realized that it did become a bit of a, I mean, it, many of them did find a workaround or used like paper and just made <laughs> made a model, but um, it did unnecessarily stress a few of them because they were like, I can't get oatmeal. And I was like, oh, don't worry. The function is not actually the oatmeal. <laughs> it was, that was just the tool that I thought was accessible to everyone, but it wasn't. It actually wasn't when we're dealing with international students. So it's, I like your idea of making it um, like a, a choice, an opt-in if you want to do this thing or if this feels comfortable and then, but not necessary because I, I did think my my oatmeal torma did stress a couple people out dr richardson one of the things i like about the topic that you've put on the table before us is it really calls my attention again to what it takes to teach the kind of planning and time right as you consider how am i going to facilitate this learning opportunity for the the students in my class both locally and and then around the globe this takes a lot of time it takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of creativity and it's so valuable 
it's also it's also um it also makes times of rest so important right at the end of the term yeah. because right because having torma activities for students at the University of Toronto or tombs for Mount Allison University students gosh that that really can take just about as long as as it does for me you know, to put together yeah. some of the written materials I share with my colleagues, right? One of the main areas of focus in your course planning seems to really be kind of humanizing the experience. And this feels like it's been probably especially important during this pandemic, right? When we've switched to online and we've kind of, uh, which often inadvertently, accidentally, or for many students probably feels like it's putting a lot of emphasis then on technology, right? We're in these mediated spaces and cameras and whatever, right? So instead of people in a room together, like, you know, where our, where our shared humanity is at least <laughs> obvious, right? So how did you, what ways did you find to humanize your online courses? Like, did you, I don't know, do you share, I feel like you probably share details about your life. I know I, I know for me, it, <laughs> the, the, the third wall, the fourth wall or whatever it's called came down. And I was like, and my children are here now. <laughs> it's quite hard not to, right? When, for example, I was teaching online between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. I was teaching a course on picture books and religious lives. And 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. is a time when typically um, my children, uh, have this reasonable expectation that I will be connected with them. And so you know, it was not infrequent that one would wander into the classroom, which doubles as my home office and bedroom. So I was teaching, right? And, and so, I mean, of course, this experience of learning together online was in some ways so beautiful you know, a number of my students are also parents. And I remember I recently shared with a colleague that uh, that one day <laughs> we were reading, you know, Michael Pewitt's The Path, right? And we were talking about the power of ritual, right? As imagined in the Analects and the Lunu, right? And the example that Pewitt gives us is that he's talking about the transformative power of ritual and the way that even when we operate as if we are still changed by. And I, of course, I'm not going to do a good job of, of capturing Pewitt's fantastic work here. But one thing I am going to capture for you is the way that we are humans learning together, even when we're doing that through a screen. And so in Pewitt's example, he talks about the game of hide and seek, right? We act as if <laughs> we don't know where the six-year-old is, even though very clearly Zoe Market Pacheco is, is hidden under the bed right before my eyes. And this was a beautiful coming together. Do you know what happened? Well, one of my students it, uh, had a, had a, a I was going to say youngster, but it's, it's a, that word doesn't really uh, come out of my mouth often, had a child at home, right? And I'd say the child was four, five, or six. The child was four and a half. Uh, Mason. And I realized, you know, Mason was also at class that day. And instead of describing Pewitt's work, Mason helped me teach about hide and seek. And so in the converse, in the class, I was first, I said, what are some of the places you can hide? And how might that be? And Mason was hiding and talking about good places and places that are less effective, right, if you want to be concealed. And then in that way, if there was another human learning with us and our learning was deeper because of it. I bet you, Dr. Richardson, if I were to call a member of that class on the phone right now, which I will not do, nevertheless, they're going to be able to tell you that there was this day where we played hide and seek with a four and a half year old. And then we talked about how our relationship with a four and a half year old has changed in that game as if, and that this relates to understandings of action in the analects. I bet everyone's learning was enriched, but more importantly, far more important, we could be, we could be together as we are right? The most important lesson, right, is without a doubt that you matter. 
right? Like just, oh. and that you're not less of a student because you're a parent as well, no. right? Which I think that's, it's actually, so, this is such a lovely story, Dr. Andrews, because I think also as a woman academic, I have spent so many years also though, trying to obfuscate those sides of myself or apologize for them or hide them, right? Like, no, no, I don't really want to talk about my kids here. I don't really, or, you know, no, no, I may appear pregnant, but let's not discuss it too much. Take me seriously today, right? So, um, and yet, the, I mean, the pandemic sort of brought a necessary end to that. Because, yeah, like you, we had, everybody has their their many people. If they're, if they're around, they're around. Um, and, but so do our students, right? right? Like, it turns out, ch- check, it turns out we're, we're, we're human too. And, and it's okay. Absolutely. It doesn't mean we're not smart. We're also smart and human. Right? Right? We are human and we're coming to this moment together. And I think... Um, I think that learning in the COVID-19 pandemic has been important for me because, because it asked me to be the person I want to be, the person who foremost concern walking into a classroom is to let people know they matter, even if they feel lonely, even if that moment are inevitable suffering, right, individually and as a group, it, even if that is very present for them, right? I, 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 in a very provisional way, only as a teacher meeting a student for a moment, I see them, they matter. I know their name. I'm glad they're there. <laughs> I have a very, you know, I have a very maybe folks would think it's ridiculous habit of beginning every class by expressing my deep gratitude for an opportunity that isn't shared by most people. I'm doing the thing that brings me deep joy, right? So I begin every class that way. And then I end every class that way, you know, and, um, and then the learning in the pandemic has allowed me to to let go of some other <laughs> expectations for what will happen, yeah. Oh. I know. It, what What did you feel you had to let go of expectations? Oh, for heaven's wise sakes. In, in online. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I we, mean can, we couldn't do as much, I'm right? I'm not sure what, what we covered. <laughs> and I don't mean that, <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. Uh, the way we were learning, right? Uh, I, I, we learn different things. Maybe I, that's fair to say. Um, but, and <laughs> I don't want to, you know, use but to dismiss what came before. We learned different things and readings and activities that have in the past been central to my course. We, we never got to them. We didn't cover them. You know, I, yeah. And that is yeah, it's what it is, right? It is what it you is. You can't be 180 people in the gym oh, right no. now, but, but <laughs> there are right, right? <laughs> I, I, I'd right like now. to go ask. I'd like to sit with those students and talk with them. Well, I I I try to dance workshop anyways online. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We I mean we hired a professional dance teacher who led it because I oh, I was not, I believe I'm not it. equipped for this. And she led she led in like Odyssey dance workshop in my religion and the arts course, and it was actually really great. And no, most of the students didn't turn their cameras on. A couple did. Um, but I actually do think they did it because then when they wrote about it on the final test, they they had a lot more thoughts about dance and Indian dance and religion than they would have if it was just a reading. So I still did it anyways. And it was weird and complicated and we weren't in a room, but we were in our rooms and we danced and those, and you know what? I think it was okay. It was a good choice. (laughs) You can see that my attic has a slanted, um, like ceiling and so we had a qigong practitioner do movement with us yes and i it was very difficult for me not only because on screen it feels quite different than together in a room right you would have experienced that in your dance but also my ceiling is so low that there's always the risk that i'll hit my head and be knocked unconscious like i'm serious but i guess <laughs> oh no you know, um after reading occupy this body dr sharon Su joined us and our one thing i have enjoyed about learning in this environment is that it was not only students in my food class who participated but 
she was generous enough to allow folks in our Buddhism class and students in my death course and students in my picture book class could participate in this chance to um, to practice, you know, mindfulness and eating. So I, I guess there have been some really rich learning opportunities, you know, where we get. Yeah. And things like having a guest lecturer who can from anywhere, right? Like that's also such a gift during the pandemic, right? And then, hey, yeah, exactly. You're in New Brunswick. I'm here in Toronto. Um, Our producer Betsy's here in Toronto, but she's in her own house. Like we're all, and we're doing this anyways. Yeah. And and I'm even doing it with a four-year-old, you know, whose school was just abruptly canceled again, right? Like it does, it does, it does make things possible that, that didn't used to be. Yeah, we're very fortunate, aren't we? In preparation for uh, this interview, I was looking at your syllabus uh, for a course on death and the afterlife in Asian religions. And I think this is one of the courses you teach fairly regularly um, at Mount Allison. I think it's I think you've made it into like a popular landmark of a course that I'm sure many students have had great experiences in. So um, I wanted to ask you, though, so one of the first critical responses or assignments is to is um, or writing about obituaries, rather. So tell me about this assignment and how you set it up and how you do this with students. I mean, obituaries, like, I mean, l- death is personal and death is troubling. And I don't know if your students, you know, your 18 to 30-year-olds or however, you know, what age, but anyone who's faced some amount of death, obituary, it's actually a pretty candid and direct kind of ex- visceral experience of people expressing, you know, the end of someone's life in words. So what's the, what it, tell us about this obituary assignment and how it works on students. That's a, that's a really important question. Uh, so a few things to know. First, you know, Sarah, so many of my students are novice learners. You know, this class, which typically welcomes 180 students, at least uh, in the autumn semester, these are often first time university learners. And many of them uh, grew up in a, in a community where obituaries you know, are a familiar form. Now, that is certainly not the case for some of my students, right? And, and so uh, that's worth, I think, considering, right? <laughs> because what I think of as a way to move from the familiar to the new is actually not always so, right? Because it's familiar for some, but not right, for others. But not yeah. for others, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, uh, uh, so that I think I want to be very much aware of as I talk about the activity. But part of it is, you know, looking at a shang tomb might be new, yeah, to students, but to some, for, for, not yeah, others. to yeah. some. But but an obituary might be a little. F- more familiar. So that's one reason that, mm-hmm. that I begin that way. Uh, the question our course is built around is, you know, what does a good death entail? Right. And so what the best college teachers do, Ken Bain talks about how courses with novice learners, we are often, you know, helping everyone by having a question that orients our attention. Mm-hmm. And an obituary is is a short document, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. And so it it allows us to ask that question, to practice asking our question in rather a limited space. And that can be a good thing because often you might have a two-paragraph obituary, you know, as we ask this question, why do you begin your course by having students explore obituaries? It's because obituaries are a form that lets us focus our attention, the document they're authoring that answers the question, how does this source matter for stuttering? Pardon me, for studying death is just as short, right? That's another reason to begin that way. And, you know, we've read a bunch of scholarship that's really accessible as we enter into that document. Um, Those are some of the reasons I begin that way. One thing I never expected, you know, I used to look at websites, funeral home websites, local, these are local stories of death, right? Um, And the only problem with funeral home websites is that they're so big, you can get lost in them. Whereas choosing an obituary uh, is, is a source that allows you to practice making an argument, having a topic sentence, um, things that, that are 
probably helpful for university students, for folks who are working outside the university, but but actually may not be. I never anticipated, of course, if I'm going to evaluate the success of your analysis, then I need to, of course, read those obituaries. So one thing I did not anticipate is what it would be like for me to read hundreds, well, perhaps only a hundred obituaries in a day or two over and over and over again. And for me, that was actually really good practice, right? Because it, it's, it, it invites me to be very much aware, right, of what it is to be with death. I don't know if you've read Joan Halifax. Being with death. Okay, Na- Dr. Nancy Lin, who is at the Institute for Buddhist Studies in Berkeley now, I think. Dr. Lin recommended that book. And because um, she knows this course is so wonderful for me, right? But, but evaluating 100 papers and also reading 100 obituaries was as much for me uh, a learning experience. And I did it again. So, yeah. Um, you know, Jessica Zitter talks about, um, and Catherine Mannix, they talk about how, uh, this is nothing new, right? Shimanooki and Coffin Man talk about how if we want to um, create opportunities for us to have good deaths, we need to talk about and consider death. One way to do that is to begin a course with, with, um, obituaries, allowing students to think to think through that question locally here in Sackville. And then in that same syllabus, you also emphasize, it looks like you put a lot of um, focus on using primary sources and helping them identify like a primary, what is a primary source? Like it's one of the course objectives, which like it sounds boring, but at the same time, that's an essential university survival skill, right? You're going to need to distinguish but to, or know, you know, that you've used primary sources or you haven't. Um, so tell me about this. How do you do it in your courses? Because I mean, I, we've many of us who are teaching first and second year undergraduate courses have to do that. And it feels, I don't feel like I've done a very good job of it often because they, yeah, they're not necessarily getting it. So what do you, how do you do this? How do you emphasize and how do you teach with and about primary sources and what, how they can help us? First of all, I know you're doing an extraordinary job of this because Long before I won this university teaching award, you won this university teaching award at the University of Toronto. Second, I am a big fan of Whitney Houston. It was the first cassette tape I owned. Okay, I know. And at the the same time, I got a soundtrack to Stand Stand By Me, which is a movie in the 80s. My point is, you may know the song, How Will I Know If He Really Loves Me, right? I say a prayer with every heartbeat. Now, our course theme song is, in fact, how will I know, changed to how do I know the answer to this question? (laughs) And we oftentimes (laughs) sing together. Uh, Our my objectives for the course are ex- wow they participate in this they like the students yes of course come along i'm gonna send you an honest <laughs> video i'll just have to get i will secure permission and enthusiastic <laughs> consent and i'll send you a video in the next 24 months Aww. that gives me time to to have yeah. students not consent and to try again okay so you know I like when it. i put <laughs> thank you when i put learning objectives on syllabi i really i I found them to be meaningful and they are the ground we're walking on. So, you know, asking not what do we know, but how do we know? I mean, that's what we want for our three-year-olds, you know, friends, as much as we want for our 82-year-old friends. It's not what do we know, but how do we think we know this? Because that's the place from which we can have discussions of interpretation. So the question, you know, how we know is our song, our primary song for the course. And we come back to it again and again and again. And really the answer is, well, we think we know because, and then we use details to make arguments. And you're probably thinking, Susie, Susie Andrews, you might be thinking at least, 
Good heavens, I have interviewed all these extraordinary scholars about the complicated and fascinating courses they teach. And you are really just singing Whitney Houston and returning again and again. You know, I my room is littered with toys, obviously, and objects. But without fail, every course, I mean, I'm sorry to say, oh, you, you won't be able to see on the podcast, but you will if you're my friend. So, of course, I have, you know, Pindala here, or usually I have a triad of. She's showing me a figure of a Chinese um, Pindala, the the Lohan, the Arhat, right? Yeah. One of the the Arhats who's remained here because he showed off, <laughs> right, with his bowl, right, that he had these powers. Mm. But my point is, I typically begin every class by singing about an object, and that's not to take away the seriousness of our endeavor, but to bring students back to that question over and over again. Also, there are awesome online resources, right? Like in that syllabus, we we draw on um, online video games, if you will, that ask you to identify primary or secondary sources. It's called Wheel of Sources. Yeah, I obviously didn't make it. And actually I have a colleague, Michael McCarthy, I think, um, from grad school who had these really wonderful slides that he shared with me in which I credit him that are really useful for making the point. Anywho. Cool. Wheel of sources, like a game, yeah. ma- gamifying def- the definition of primary sources. Yeah. I love it. I'm yeah. not sure if it's and as fun for everyone as it is for me, but I really enjoy hey. it. Your <laughs> hey. students might well, then, too. You know what? They should. They will. Um, yeah. I'm sure they will. And, you know, the use of tell me more about so this using of toys and objects like statues. I That's this is um, this is the same kind of stuff I'm really into. I'm really into just like, let's be tactile somehow. Let's and normally I mean, it was one of the things that, that freaked me out about the transition to online because I used to always bring a box of crap to class and when that was the basis of the class was like today we're going to play with potatoes and <laughs> statues I don't know where that's going to fit though and we would like that was the the launching off point and it was really that was how I kind of conceptualized my learning so then when it went online I was a little freaked out at first that I couldn't do those things but I think actually there's still a lot you can do um, but tell me about your use of objects and toys and tools like and teaching really I mean teaching also with material culture because I guess that's those are all sort of integrated things sure uh, so just as with a large class you know with 180 students so too with the smaller class, one of my favorites is religions of China. You know, I, I don't, I teach at an undergraduate institution. So we have these, you know, these kind of big topics, right, to cover with folks who are psychology students and commerce students. So, you know, we're bringing together folks with diverse interests. And so in that class, it's one of my most favorite. <laughs> okay. I can tell they're all my favorites. The point is, on the first day of class, everyone comes in and they select from a collection of objects that I've been um, bringing together over 15 years now. And they select one and they spend the semester exploring, learning about what is this. For many, it's quite familiar. You know, that might be... um, you know, candles that w- candles made of plastic, incense burners that would sit on a home altar, perhaps. Sometimes it would be a, a decorative plate. Uh, what else do you? Oh, we we do have some statuary at our university. On the first day, students can select an object to learn about all semester long, and and. They're, they can rely on work, Morgan or Plate, to, in, to understand what does this do for the individuals who hold it, the communities of which humans form yeah. a part. Yeah, totally. No, <laughs> I did. So, so you know, I, something I tried this year too mm-hmm. online, and it it was kind of cool. It was the very first day we introduced ourselves through objects. So you had <gasps> to you had to grab something within reach, and use it to introduce yourself. I've never tried that. I will try that. And I wish I had tried that. That sounds... So what did you choose as your object? It's not here anymore. One day I chose um, a, a silly eraser that my father had just sent me because I was really excited that I'd gotten mail that day and it was like a Batman eraser. So 
what would you choose um, now? Yeah, oh, good question. If I was doing, if so if I was going to, well, I would choose this pencil because this pencil is actually really funny. You can't see what it says, but this pencil says, I never did my homework either, kid. <laughs> Which isn't actually true. Of course, I did my homework a lot. But, oh, no, but exactly. That's why it's such a I good object to love select. It because it, make, it gives me a chuckle. Yeah. And I feel like pencils that give me a chuckle are pretty much the levity I need right now. So yeah, I would do something like that. Um, I would use a disco ball once. Yeah. <sighs> a disco ball within reach. <laughs> I, I I think that you're very fortunate to have a disco ball in reach. I, I wish I did too. And I, what I really like about that activity you described is it it helps us as learners, you know, appreciate the way that we tell our stories through the objects around us, right? And that those objects also shape how we can imagine ourselves. That's a really great activity. In the winter, I'll be teaching a new course called Religious Stuff. Oh, cool. And Religious yeah. stuff. I love yes, it. I know. It's a, I think it's a pretty nice. exciting title. Yeah. And we have a new program in visual material culture here at Mount A. Cool. And so that course will be an offering for those students as well as our religious studies students. And in that example, one thing I'm very much looking forward to is exploring the material sort of necessities of text. You're like, Susie, of Ooh, course, cool. everyone has already written about this. Yes. And no, yet. But having them do it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So several years ago, I had yeah. colleagues who um, in the fine arts department who helped us learn to do woodblock printing. Cool. And so my students will yeah. do that, right? Yeah. Or for example, calligraphy, what have you. But the best part of the whole learning is we're once again collaborating with Sackville Play School, Inc., our local designated cool. early learning center to recreate our learning in ways that will matter for them. Wow. Very I know. cool. I, I think awesome. so. I know, so, Sarah. So what kind of book stuff are you going to have them make or do? Or, have, or is it still too far in the future to really know? Or like, are you going to print? Are you going to, are you going to calligraphy? Are you going to, I mean, with Chinese stuff, you also have those cool scratch away books, right? Like you could do the scratch away characters. Right. There is a lot. And of course the, right. It, it will be exciting for now. May I tell you? On our way to winter 2022, my other course <laughs> that's very exciting is religion and children, a topic that we know our colleague Vanessa Sasson, for example, Natasha Heller, these are experts in that field. What makes our class uh, exciting to me is not only we get to engage through our scholarship, but we are collaborating with the play school, right, through our, our story lab, too create curriculum invitations to learning. The project's called Thinking Inside the Box. <laughs> it's COVID-19 pandemic, pandemic approved because my students on the first day of class are going to walk into the learning environment and see big boxes. Uh-oh, everyone loves a big box. This year I wrapped up all oh. my reading materials for students and let <laughs> yeah, them unwrap yeah. them online. And I delivered yeah. them to their houses and then we'd be on screen. But the point is, or mail them, the point is they will see on the first day of class <laughs> a huge box. Yeah. Oh, then they'll, and with their name, they'll open it inside. <laughs> I love it. Syllabus. Oh. <laughs> and 50 bucks. I love it. And right. <laughs> You're like, seriously, 50? I don't know, Sarah. I don't know if I can afford that. I hope it's more than 20. It may be 10. And what I hope your grant covers this. Don't, do, yeah, don't pay out of pocket, Susie. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> I'm not paying out of pocket for this. And what they're going to do is use those funds to design a, a learning invitation around the Canadian calendar. What do you mean, Susie? Well, Vasak. What do you mean, Suze? Lunar New Year. What do you mean, Suze? I mean, holy, right? We are going to create invitations for, for youngsters age two, three, four, and five. Yes, oh, deliver wow. them to the preschool yeah. each month. Ah, has books, Whoa. stories, cooking, art, music. Oh, oh, oh. I know. And they, they celebrate all these holidays. Amazing. Yes, we, because one thing we're learning, or at least that I think I'm beginning to appreciate, is that, you know, that access 
to picture books and other materials that reflects the diversity of our community. We really don't have um, we don't have that material available locally yet. Or you know what? I'm I'm silliness, Susan. That's not true. I'm just doing a bad job, right, of serving as a bridge to talk about it here. So there's nothing that my students and I need to do. We just need to to create opportunities. Yeah, but you're but that don't put it down. It's like it will be such a great opportunity for oh, it and it'll be, be it, like it'll be fun for the students to prepare those things too, right? To like and they'll be learning about like how what could I what's the takeaway? What's the activity? What's the thing you could do, right? And they will have to then question like there's also then the questions of how what's appropriate representation of Vesak, right? What is mm. or is this too stereotype or is it right? Mm-hmm. They'll be the, you're gonna have asked the university students to grapple with those questions. It's great. Yes, and we don't need to be the folks to make those choices because, for example, like a colleague and and friend, Simranjit Singh, right, at the Sikh Coalition, he has shared wonderful learning resources that we we can simply curate for the classroom. And you might say, well, why do we even need to do that? Well, one thing that is a priority in our local learning environment is emergent curriculum. It's invitational. So students learners make choices about what they want to ask and how. And so really a role my students can play is by bringing this material to life in ways that give the preschoolers choice. And so arranging the material such that it can be used over a day or a week, that's really the role we'll play. That's so cool, Susie. That that's so cool. Like, because also our imaginations are formed and by the things we see and know about, right? The things we come into contact with. So that's a that's a really beautiful um, idea for a course. I love it. I'm so that's so exciting. Yes, um, but don't you tell my students because there has to be oh, the element of surprise on the yeah, first yeah. day. Don't worry. I don't think many of our students listen to these podcasts. It's okay <laughs> until we assign them. You can assign it. <laughs> I totally will. I would yeah. not assign myself. I would, you can assign I would, someone else's if you want. Yeah, Francis <laughs> Yeah, that was a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was pretty good. Back to kind of let's. Um, talk about teaching more generally. What is it that you want to see or hear more of from your colleagues in Buddhist studies about pedagogy, especially like especially related to Buddhism? And I know that we don't all just teach about Buddhism. We teach about religion or we teach about Asia or we teach about culture. We teach we teach really big things sometimes too. Are there particular concepts or approaches that you're really interested right now in learning more about? One thing I'm noticing, Sarah, is that many of our colleagues are doing an extraordinary job of building others up. And I guess all I'd like to hear more of is folks saying so-and-so and that person is not me is doing such and such. And I think it's incredible because dot, dot, dot. So for example, I'll give an example, Dr. Natasha Heller, Virginia taught a course on children, right? And and religion and, and picture books. And I think that she worked, you know, it, it, with with materials in the special collections to learn alongside, right? Weaving together her research interest with her teaching. And I think that's extraordinary, right? Not only because it brings her students into conversation with what's at the the edge, the growing edge of our field, but also because I imagine (laughs) that meeting was transformative. Or here, you know, my colleague, um, Dr. Barbara Clayton, she's a scholar of Buddhist studies, so I think she's a good example here, has been doing this extraordinary work to bring folks into the classroom and and to invite her students from the classroom into the community. And so she just taught that she's part of our new community engagement course, or sorry, forgive me, field of study. And so she had students working, um, she does a lot of work on environmental justice working in the community with organizations to apply what they were learning about, for example, Buddhist perspectives on the environment, right, to benefit folks locally. So if there's only one thing I'd like to hear more of, it's about our tremendous uh, 
our tremendous colleagues and um and as I say that I guess Sarah I'm filled with regret. Oh why? No <laughs> regret. Why? Because I because I neglected to say like who do I think is really awesome at that? I mean that's something that Dr. Ang Gleek mm-hmm. She does so incredibly well. So I'd like just more of her in the field. I noticed that she spends so much time finding out what people are up to. And like amplifying and it. Yeah, them. I've noticed that yes. too. She's inspiring to me, right? And she and, uses and, social and, media. And, she right? She's really good on Twitter. But I, I'm, yeah, I know. I know I'm intimidated though, uh, but yes, Dr. Ann Gleig, we have to get her on this podcast. I really hope we're going to. You haven't had her? We've tried, but she's very busy, but we're going to have her soon. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Without a doubt. She's someone who builds others up, right? That's all I want. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's a great response. Thank you. Anything we missed? No. All we missed was me telling you how delighted and honored I am. All right. I'm so, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was a great interview. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Susie. You can find more information about Susie's research and publications on her profile page. We'll post a link in the show notes. Remember, show notes and transcripts are available on our website at teachingbuddhism.net. And we'll share all the resources she spoke about. And if you have enjoyed this, we would love to hear from you. So please let us know over social media or email. And we invite you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And a very special thanks to Dr. Betsy Moss for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. This podcast was produced by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Be well.